Welcome to the Head & Why podcast, episode 1060. This is my interview with peak performance coach and expert, Steve Magnus, discussing his new book, Do Hard Things. Enjoy. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the Head & Why podcast. Great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really excited. I'm very excited, Steve. You've got a couple of um, amazing books out there, um, Peak Performance. You also wrote Passion Paradox. Is that right? That's correct. That's right. And we're all about passion here at the uh, the Hidden Why. And uh, your most recent book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness, um, which I'm probably about a quarter or a third way through, um, and a fascinating, insightful book as well. Uh, lots of science and psychology there to back up um, you know, what your thoughts are on real toughness. So I want to delve into the discussion today, um, Steve, but first I just want to um, have you introduce yourself, what you do and your background. Yeah. So introduce myself. Yeah, no problem. So <laughs> now, now I write and consult um, and do some performance coaching. So I work with athletes, executives, all sorts of people, basically looking at performances, performance. So I'm trying to help people get better at, at whatever they're doing. My background is actually in sport. So a long time runner, um, long time coach of runners uh, from all the way youth runners, all the way up to Olympians and professional athletes and stuff like that. So that's kind of where I come at, at things from. Um, but now I've just kind of taken it from sport to look at performance holistically. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you do have a, a sporting background. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, sport is my, my favorite thing. I mean, I grew up playing basically everything uh yeah, basketball right. soccer all that stuff but my sport the thing i ended up being really good at was track and field athletics so i was uh way back in the day a, a four minute miler um as a as a high schooler and ran pretty well in college and afterwards for a little bit but uh running was my thing yeah wow well, yeah i um i did start to enjoy running but i don't think it was my thing in the end, uh, not good for the uh, the knees. Flat footed and big bones. So, um, yeah, that that'll do it. Sometimes, you know, that pounding isn't isn't very fun if your your body's not built for it. No, no. So I'll stick to the water uh, myself. But uh, that's fascinating. Okay, so you got into um, coaching through your sporting career. Then is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of came as my own kind of failings as an athlete. I would honestly say is that. Um, you know, the things you struggle with to figure out and overcome are often the things that kind of guide you in life. So for me, it was like, well, I didn't quite hit what I thought was my potential. And then I wanted to understand why. So that started first looking at kind of the physiology and exercise science, but then quickly went into kind of the, the psychology and mental side of it too. So I've, I've kind of taking that lens of kind of breaking things down to try and understand them to the rest of my life. Cause it's all physical and mental at the end of the day, isn't it? And, um, I guess often with sports, um, we overlook the mental side of things and we just focus on the, the physical ability. Absolutely. You know, and that was my intuition actually early on is I was convinced everything was about, you know, getting physically better and doing the training and all that stuff. But what you quickly realize is the power of that mental side. Mm. And that, that mental side can often impact, you know, whether you're successful out on the, on the track or field or pitch or whatever, but it also impacts, you know, whether you stick with it for a long haul and your motivation and all those other good things. So I think it's, uh, 
it's an important but oft neglected part of uh, part of sport. Would you say it's more important than the physical side of things? Oh man, that's that's tough to tough to quantify, but I do think that I do think that it's necessary to get anywhere close to your potential. Mm. And and that's where again I think that we make a a mistake where we think, oh, if I just, you know, get stronger or faster or whatever, everything will take care of itself. And that's just not the case, especially the higher higher and higher you go. I mean, the better you get, the more kind of mental psychological stress comes, comes through with things. So Mm. it becomes even more important, you know, the more successful you get. Yeah. Yeah. So you started looking at the, the physical side of your own performance first, and I imagine you improved through looking at that, but then you realized there was the next level was, was the mental makeup. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think that's, that was, that's kind of the difference maker of, Mm. of performance. It sets everything up. And, you know, one of the things I like to say, especially during my time coaching running is like, you can get everything in the best physical shape of your life. But if you don't have the (laughs) mental makeup, if you don't have things squared away where you can handle the performance, the anxiety, the stress surrounding it, all that stuff. Like the physical doesn't matter. It's not going to express itself. Yeah. So yeah. if we, w- if we want to express our performance, we, we better have our mental side sharp. Yes, absolutely. And the integration of, um, you know, we're talking about it from a sporting perspective really, but it's relative in anything that you do your career as well, you know? Exactly. You know, actually, before I wrote uh, Peak Performance, I remember this moment pretty clearly as we were interviewing uh, a guy named Matt Billingsley, who world-class drummer. um, I think is currently the drummer for Taylor Swift. So, you know, goes up on stage with her in front of whatever, 50,000 screaming fans and performs. And I remember asking him, well, how do you get ready for something like that? Like, how do you get ready to perform in front of, you know, thousands or millions on TV, which he'd often do. And he started walking me through his performance. And he was like, you know, first I, you know, get my arms loose, but then I like do this and this routine and ritual and all this stuff. And it just struck me at, at some point I was like, Matt, like you haven't mentioned drumming once. And he was like, no, no. He's like, no, no. It's not about the drumming. It's about getting my mind in the right space to do the thing that I've practiced forever. Yeah. It's like I I know how to drum, but if I don't get my mind in that right space, then the performance isn't going to come. And that was like that message to me was like, "Oh, that's just like the athletes warming up. This is just like the writer sitting down to write and getting his desk and his workspace in the right spot so that he can be creative. So to me, that's, you know, we talk, we start talking about sport, but to me, it's performance is performance. If we can use these same things to get us in the right space, we're going to be in a better spot. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. I love the crossover from all of that. And, you know, reflecting back to some of those practices that are shared through your work Mm -hmm. as well, um, quite has been quite useful to me in my occupation, um, which is great. Are you, are you a, an academic? Like, have you studied psychology? Have you studied these aspects? Or is it purely you've gone out there and just self-researched and interviewed people and figured it out? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I do have a master's in in exercise physiology, and then I went back and and took the coursework for for uh, for mental performance and sports psych. Um, I have I actually started a PhD, but decided it wasn't for me and quit about a year and a half through because I just hated the the kind of academic side of uh, of research, and I'm yeah. all about. I'm all about taking things from the academic and getting them to the practical. Yeah. So I do have, I'm not a psychologist, but I do have academic training on that side of things, um, which I think helps at least because I do do heavily believe and pull on some of the science and, and all that good stuff. But to me, I'm also my most important. And I think my, my kind of gift or, 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 you know, purpose in this stuff is, being where the rubber meets the road on how do we apply these things to help yeah. people? Yeah. And, and that's where I kind of, it's almost like translating some of that work into, okay, how does this apply to our lives? Which is great, you know, like to have someone like you that can dismantle all that information, which is just well over the top and put it into a simple form. I mean, the amount of research you've put into your book is huge. Yeah. So, um, and then you put it into a, you know, it's a fairly big book actually, but it's still um, digestible, you know, you can still take it. All that many years of research and um, thousands of reviewed articles and, and interviews that you've done and put it into a, a short, shorter form. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's kind of about because like I'm, it's about getting to usability. Like all of the research is great, but if, if you know, only a couple dozen people read it and it's too complicated to understand or what have you translate, then it doesn't do What's society- yeah, it yeah. doesn't do society much use. So yeah. to me, to me, it's like the the coaches had is like, okay, how do we simplify this and almost come up, you know, I'll use the athletic analogy, but how do we create all this information, all this that we know works and put it into a game plan that can be used by players or in this case, other people where it's like, okay, I can take this, apply this to my life. And if I do that, performance will get better. Yeah, yeah. Who are some of the... um you know, the, the famous athletes that you've worked with or, or executives maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been fortunate. Uh, I've worked with a, a number of athletes, um, especially in the U S uh, in various professional sports. I've worked with a couple NBA teams. So national basketball association yeah, wow. uh, worked, worked with a couple world-class uh, marathoner, Sarah Hall, who was just uh, fifth at the world championships. Um last or a couple months ago, some athletes who have, you know, been Olympians in a variety of sports. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with some executives and, uh, and some fortune 500 companies, uh, who are doing cool things. And I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting, but the, the crossover is you was on, on face value, you would think like, Oh, like how do these compare? But, you know, Last week, I was out at a conference giving a talk to a Fortune 500 company, and the week before that, I was talking to, a, you know, an NBA team. And the converse, the conversations are remarkably similar because, mm. at the end of the day, we're all humans, right? And and like the avenue that we're applying it to, maybe, you know, the stress of figuring out how to perform under profession pressure in basketball mm. might be shooting something, but that same thing of how do we perform? Well, we've got, 
you know, shareholders looking down our throats and like needing to, you know, give this good, you know, presentation that determines whether, you know, whether a company is successful or not, like it's the same kind of pressure and experience. Mm. So, so the individual scenario might be different, but I think you can apply the same principles throughout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do hard things. What is, what is your definition of toughness? Because you've sort of flipped it around, haven't you? I mean, what we typically think of toughness and, you know, my image that comes to my mind when I first got the, the book was, you know, this macho, manly sort of alpha male figure that shares no emotion and just is unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's everybody's kind of conceptualization. Actually, before I did the book, I surveyed, I think it was, it was close to a hundred people. And that was the overwhelming, like I, and I asked them, I said, what comes to your mind when you think of someone who's tough? And that was the overwhelming kind of picture that comes into their minds because that's what society tells us. Yeah. Yeah. But the reality is this, is that toughness is way more about what I call inner strength than that external like machoism, bravado, et cetera, et cetera. And we know this logistically, right? We can mm -hmm. think of situations where maybe the toughest people we know are like some cancer survivor who went through some harrowing thing. And they might might be a woman who went through some something and survived or like the single mom who figures out how to how to raise children in an environment that like isn't conducive to that or whatever have you like we know examples that are out there and it turns out that the research shows pretty clearly that toughness isn't about that external but instead it's we all have the capability when we experience some sort of discomfort or stress, and this is how I define toughness, it's experience mm -hmm. some sort of discomfort, stress, uncertainty. And instead of just thinking, oh, I have to bulldoze through this, instead think, how do I create the space to navigate it? Because what we know when we're going through tough times and we're in those tough situations it's not about bulldozing through. It's about navigating. And when I say navigating, it's mean, I mean, trying to get to the best decision possible in that moment. So mm. if we think of it in a sporting context, it's how do I feel that pressure and still make the right choice to, you know, throw the ball to the right area or the right player or what have you in a, in a, in a business world. It's I feel that pressure to perform, but I don't take the easy way out. Instead, I get to the thoughtful action that I want to take that is best for us. So the way to get that through that is to navigate, not to bulldoze. So in, internal toughness, more so. Yep. It, it, it's all about the internal. And, you know, a good friend of mine um, who's used to be a really good athlete but now is in the military and the special forces put it, put it to me like this. He said, you know, in the, in the military, often they do these scenarios where they kind of drop you off in the middle of the woods and tell you to survive, right? It's training. And they're just trying to see essentially how tough you are and if you can survive. And, and he was like, you know, the people you think are going to succeed are the people who are very brash, right? They've got that bravado. They think like, oh, I've got this. This is no problem, blah, blah, blah. And he said, Here's the thing that happens when you drop people out who play that external card over and over and you drop them in the woods, the facade disappears. 
because they are faced with real stress of, oh my gosh, I had to figure out how to live. Mm. And the people who make it are the ones who are more kind of realistic. And they have that kind of inner confidence and that internal like strength where they say, you know what? This is going to be tough. It's going to push all my skills, but I've done this training and I have to rely on that. And those are the people who, who kind of make it and survive. And I think the same thing applies to the rest of life where too often we look at these external measures of, of toughness. And instead we need to look at that inner strength on when push comes to shove, like how are you handling the difficult things? Mm. Like how are you navigating through it? And do you have the skill set to do so? And that's, I mean, you've got four pillars in the book and, and that's one of them, ditch the facade and embrace reality. So, and when we're talking about this internal toughness, it's, it's almost like what we were talking about before. There's the physical side of things and the mental side of things. It really is that, that mental, inner mental game that you're trying to master with this idea of toughness because you're right. I mean, we think about, you know, someone in the, in the Navy SEALs or something like that, you know, big and physical and strong and has to go through all those challenges but then you think about the mum that's had four kids and raised them on their own, you know. So it's contextual, isn't it, toughness? It's, it, it's... It, it is, absolutely. And, you know, to get this point across, I like to look at, if you look at, you know, the research on handling pain, for example, like who handles pain the most or best. Um, one of the, 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 the groups as a whole that handles pain, you know, um, much better than anybody else is, is monks, Right who, if you look at a, a monk, like a Buddhist monk, you're looking, they're like not big, tough guys, but their inner strength is so freaking high because what do they do? They practice, you know, mindfulness and meditation and spending hours upon hours inside their head alone and navigating, you know, their inner dialogue and thoughts and emotions and figuring out how to, because that's like what being a monk is. And because of that, when you stick them in like painful situations, like, you know, shocking them in the lab or, you know, essentially burning their part of their hands, you know, in the lab, what we see is or what researchers see is they see that they handle pain better because they don't catastrophize off of it. They're able to say, okay, this is pain. Yes, it hurts, but I know how to like manage this inner world. Where often, you know, unfortunately for many of us in, in Western societies, we never experience that inner world because we're always distracting ourselves from it. Mm. So that mental muscle is really weak. So we might look really strong, but inside, like we can't handle that pain or discomfort because we haven't like haven't given ourselves. It. Yep. We haven't given ourselves the chance to practice it. Yeah. So you've had monks in the lab where you, where you put light to them. Yeah, so there's all sorts of interesting research where they've uh, they've it's done crazy. crazy stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild, but it gives you again a, a a clue on like the possibility of the human mind, where you know if you train it up, like it's capable of of you amazing things. Yeah, yep, and such an important skill in life, isn't it? Really, because the challenges that life's going to throw at us, if we're not mentally tough or internally tough. We're going to find it really hard to navigate those those challenges. Exactly, and you see the same actually. And there's some other research, uh, not by me, but by others who looked at survivors of like disasters and like the, going back to looking at survivors of the Holocaust. And 
over and over again, it shows you that like their inner mental resiliency is just very high. And a lot of, if you look at Holocaust survivors, for example, one of the reasons that, that makes it high is that they are very, have almost this inner clarity on their sense of purpose and what matters to them. So mm. when you ask, ask them, well, how do you survive? They'd be like, you know, I focused on the things that mattered and getting back to those things. So for many yeah. people, it's, it's like the family or the loved one or whatever have you, or for some like God or religion, like something that kind of grounds them and gives them that inner strength to handle harrowing, harrowing things that are unimaginable. Mm, yeah. To push through in those, those tough times. The, idea of training for that so you know you can walk into a situation and say yeah yeah this is going to be cool and then suddenly oh shock jesus bloody tough and you're not prepared so getting mentally prepared training and practicing mentally over and over again what sort of practices do you um share with with the people you work with yeah so all i i like to look at it there's a concept in psychology called stress inoculation which is what it sounds like you put yourself in stressful situations and guess what like you slowly get adapted and used to them and figure out how to, how to, how to navigate through them. Um, so what I like to do is with people I work with is have them think of things that are really stressful in their life that they don't like to do. Mm. So it could be something very simple. We could use a physical stressor, like jumping in an ice bath. Like that's not very fun. <laughs> like yes. plunging it, it, it's, it sucks. Like you want to jump out. But what you can do is if you jump in that ice bath, if you can then learn, okay, like my tendency is to freak out, to want to jump out of this. If you can learn to just kind of sit with that and experience it and not fight it, what you're doing is training that mental muscle. Mm. The, same, the same thing occurs if you do things like if you're afraid of public speaking, well, go up and do some simple public speaking. Same thing occurs. You're strengthening that mental muscle because you're taking on something that is stressful and then saying, okay, like I'm going to try and get through this. And the advice I'd give to people is, is start small. You don't have to take on the big thing. The wonderful thing about training this mental muscle is like for most of us, it could be as simple as like just being alone in your head or, you know, one of the things that sounds weird, but actually works is like sitting with your, your phone out. And whenever you get a, a text or a notification, like don't instantly grab it, like just sit with it. And what you're going to experience is some anxiety that is trying to push you towards checking that phone because we all want to check the phone. Mm -hmm. And if you learn how to just kind of, again, sit with that anxiety and not react to it, you're going to train that kind of mental willpower muscle where you're like, okay, I, I do have control over this. Like I don't have to just react to my phone telling me to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. That is a challenge for a lot of people these days. 100%. It's, it's, it's a tough thing. It's simple, but man, it's tough. Ah, it's cut the world. Um, yeah, no, really good ideas there. And I think, I think the hardest thing, um, for anyone, including myself, I've found anyway, is that idea of meditation. Um, to, you know, there's so many different options out there to meditate with, but to be able to sit there for, for five minutes, for half an hour with yourself, I think just being with yourself is the hardest thing. 
it, and having it no is. distractions, no noise, you know, just out, even in nature, like, you know, I'll go on a hike by myself for, yep. for three days. Um, just that being in your head and being by yourself is amazing how hard it is, but how strengthening it is at the same time. It, it is. And that's why, you know, there's it, people ask me all the time. They're like, how do I get started with meditation or mindfulness? I'm like, there's so many different ones out there. Choose what you like. But the other thing is, to me, it's as, it's as simple as find some space to be alone in your head. Yeah. And if that if that's on a hike, great, go on a hike. If that is walking your dog, well, guess what? Go walk your dog without your phone and just like be alone in your head. Yeah. Like find those spaces. And if you do that, like slowly you're going to improve in that ability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the cold bath is an interesting one. Do you do you do that daily or are you a cold <laughs> bath man or a cold shower man? I, 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 I am not, I hate cold baths, but I have in the past, um, gone through that where, especially for just kind of training the mental side of, uh, mental side of things. I like, you know, nowadays I like doing my kind of difficult things in terms of, um, um, exercise and performances once a week, at least I'll have something where I push myself pretty hard, where I'm in that place of uncomfortableness where I'm like, okay. Like, I kind of want to quit this, but then I have to, like, figure out how not to quit it. And that yeah. kind of gives me that inoculation that that I need. But that, you doing that and doing it again and again and again, when you get to that stressful situation where you're going, this is bloody hard, how much easier does it get for you to just go, you know what, I'll just keep pushing through? When yeah, you first does. started out, it was it was different, wasn't it? You'd actually give up. Oh, 100%. You, don't, you, you for sure would give up. And that's, mm. that's, that's what I love is the dialogue changes mm. and that's what it's all about. Whatever that thing in your life is, you you're in control of changing that dialogue. And the way you do that is just repetitively put yourself in those situations until it becomes adapted to, and this is what they do. And, you know, you look at, again, you look at the military and people see all the crazy stuff they do, but if you go to you know, they're training, for example, at flight school, you know, before they jump out of planes and do crazy stuff, you watch them. They're on the ground, you know, from a platform, I don't know, five feet up, 10 feet up, 15 feet up, jumping off. Right. And you're like, well, that's not that difficult. We're like, but that's the steps that they're taking to slowly get used to the point where they're like, okay, we're going to go jump out a plane and, you know, with whatever crazy stuff. Mm. So it's it's the same with the rest of us. Gradually put us in those situations and it becomes a little easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And it just reminds me of the tennis player, you know, just constantly hitting that ball, hitting that ball, hitting that ball. But then doing it also in a different environment where you're hitting that ball, hitting that ball, like whether it's hot environment, cold environment, outside, inside, um, just changing little bits up. It, exactly. You're just altering the stimulus and the stress so that like you're continually adapting to it. Stress inoculation. I like that. When you talk about um, pillar two, listen to your body. What are you looking for there as far as listening to the body? Yeah. So what you said at the beginning there is what most people think of is, um, you know, ignore your emotions, push through. Well, it turns out that our emotions are actually very useful or can be. And when yeah. I say listen, listen to your body, what I'm telling you or what I'm trying to tell people to do is, it's not ignoring your emotions. It's not, you know, succumbing or always saying, yes, this is what I need to do because my emotion said, 
what we want to do and what you see experts in, in resilience and toughness are able to do is they're able to sort out what signals from their, their feelings and, and, and emotions they should listen to and what ones they should pass on by. The way I like to I like to use this is, you know, if you've ever gone and exercised the first time you did it, you might be got sore and you thought like, oh, my gosh, I'm injured. Like this hurts a lot. But you were just sore like it wasn't a big deal. Hmm. But but you had to take time to learn the difference between, you know, pain that just meant maybe fatigue and soreness and pain that meant, hey, this is an injury. This is my knee is starting to hurt running. So I need to stop and find something else. Mm. Well, well, it turns out that for everything else in life, that it's very similar is that we need to learn how to sort through our kind of emotions and feelings and learn what they're communicating to us. And if we do that, we're going to be able to make better decisions. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the practice of mindfulness where you're actually more attuned with the body because you're, you're just more aware generally. Exactly. Um, do you do you look at you know gut feel because I often have gut feel and you might have researched this a bit more but often it's right you know when I when the situation feels right I can often now go yeah this doesn't feel right I'm going to avoid it or this does feel right I'm going to you know move towards it yeah you know I came across some research I forget what university it was out of but that looked at gut feeling and investors. And what they found is that those who scored higher on this thing called interoception, which is essentially a psychological measure that says, like, how well can you read and listen to your body? The ones who scored higher on that or scored better on that were better investors. Uh Why? Because they were able to know when to listen to their gut. They were able to say, oh, this is my gut, like telling me to buy or sell or whatever. And it's in tune. The people who like had never done any mindfulness or meditation or like ignored their, their body, like their gut feelings weren't very accurate mm. because they, they didn't know how to sort through it. So the answer I'd give from there is the nuance is like your gut can work really well is if, if you've trained your mind to kind of like know what your, your, your feelings and sensations are. Isn't that amazing how that works? It must be connected to your gut microbiome or something and how that interacts with the brain. And I think yeah. I have interviewed people that are starting to, you know, really get into that research now as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably some sort of connection there. Respond or react. What's the difference? So reacting to me is, you know, we talked about creating space. Reacting is when there is no space. So you feel that discomfort, that stress and anxiety, and you just look for the quickest thing that will resolve it. Mm-hmm. And often the quickest thing is getting out of that situation or escaping or quitting or what have you. It's almost like feeling hunger and reaching for the candy, right? Mm-hmm. Responding to me is feeling hungry and then reaching for something that is nutritious because you know that it's not just going to help you in the here and now, but over the long haul. And I think that's what I mean by responding instead of reacting is often in tough situations, <laughs> we, we get into reactive mode where we're just like, okay, how do I solve this thing right in front of me, right in front of me? And we reach for the quickest, easiest thing. When reality is we want to do not just the thing that helps me get out of this situation, but the best thing for us over the long haul. Mm. So again, it kind of comes back to that developing that mental muscle where instead of reaching for the easy stuff, we say, hey, wait a minute, 
like what's the thing that sets us up uh, best over the long haul? Yeah, yeah, and it all just links back to that whole overall awareness about you and what your purpose is, you know, and if you're linking yep. back there, um, that pause between doing that next thing, like when you have that rather than reacting, you have that pause and sometimes a pause you can't even, you know, in time-wise, you wouldn't even recognise that pause. Um, but, you know, there's so many good examples of everyday life where I think we could we could throw this in and it's like, you know, getting a text from someone that sort of aggravates you and responding immediately. You know, and the best practice, like emails, and the best practice is to go, okay, get it, let it sit there, respond later, you know, because often that first thing that you wanted to respond with is not what you would have actually responded with five hours later. It, bingo. That's the perfect example because, like, how often does that happen in life where we just get that that text that sets us off and then we fire off the, the barrage back and it's the biggest mistake, right? Mm. It's, it's apply that same thing to the rest of your life is the way I like to think of it is making that pause allows your kind of rational cognitive executive functioning brain to kick back online yeah. when it temporarily has gone offline because like the emotional side has gone haywire because you've got this thing that has offended you or upset you or whatever have you. If you, if you want to see a lot of reacting, just go on social media right? People just react all the time. Oh, but we'd, we'd be a better society if we had maybe, I don't know, uh, a minute pause before sending out the tweet or, or a Facebook message or what have you. Is that just like the natural, you know, fight or flight mode sort of lizard brain coming into play there? That's what it's about, isn't it? Like we, we react because it's about our survival and we think somehow we're threatened. Yeah, exactly. There's some fascinating research that I've done that some neuroscientists have done that that has found that essentially like when we get that like threat when we feel threatened like that lizard brain emotional side goes so up so high that it shuts down our our executive functioning mm. so it's like it's like that brain doesn't work anymore right mm. and and the example i like to give here is if you've ever been in an argument with a spouse or significant other and you say something that like you'd never say before. And then someone says like, like, I don't even know who you are or what have you. And the reason that happens is pretty simply because they're correct. They don't know who you are because you've let that emotional side spiral so much that your lizard brain is taken over and your executive function is completely offline. Mm. So, so the way to flip that, that switch or get that executive function back on is just like you talked about that pause, yeah, that pause. or perspective. Yeah. If, yeah. if, if you can just kind of pause and zoom out a little bit, brain comes back online, you can rationally work through it. Yeah. And through that mental training that you do and mindfulness, et cetera, you'll, you'll find that easier and easier as, as you, you know, as you get, get along. I certainly have in my life and don't still react today, but you know, not as much as I used to. Um, it, it, exactly. That's what it, it is. In saying that too, that, that mammalian brain, you know, coming into place, that has its purpose and it has its part to play. Like when you are actually in a legitimate death situation, yeah, sure. Right. I mean, exactly. It's not a, it's not a fault if, you know, I see a, I don't know, a, a lion or bear on, on a trail. Like I want that part of my brain to kick in and take over. I don't want to be sitting there thinking. Sitting there going, what should I do about this bear coming towards me? Yeah, exactly. The problem is, is, is too often in our modern world, it kicks on 
on thinking there's a threat when there isn't a lion or bear or whatever in front of us. And that's a big problem with you know reality today. We we don't really have any of those threats anymore, but we still have that part of us that um, reacts like we do. Exactly. Which is uh, interesting. So that's pillar three, respond instead of react. Pillar four, finally, transcend discomfort. Um, I love this one and I, I love being uncomfortable. I think it's the best thing that uh, I've learned in life is to try and push myself into those situations. Um, and you started that before, like um, with the stress inoculation. I think that's where this sort of heads. But what what is this part of your book and research? About? Yeah, yeah. So this is all about just like you said. It's kind of embracing that discomfort. And you know, one of the the final chapter is called "Finding Meaning in Discomfort," and that ties back into some of that research, as I said, in the Holocaust that that other researchers have done which shows that like if we can kind of embrace and find meaning in that it makes the discomfort more more um manageable and it allows us to kind of adapt and see see the good uh from it as well mm-hmm. so to me it's kind of shifting our mindset a little bit and actually there was uh, again a fascinating study i didn't do it but uh, some other psychologists that took people and had them do one of the most uncomfortable things that I think you could do now, which is sit people down in the U.S. from opposing political parties and had a conversation with them. And what they found is when they told those people, talking to people who had completely opposite views, they said, guess what? This conversation is going to be uncomfortable, but I want you to go towards that and embrace that. That's the entire point of this conversation. They had a more productive conversation. They rated it as more productive. They rated the other person as like nicer and friendlier. They didn't agree on everything, but they walked away being able to talk and like see the other person as a human being. Mm. So I think so much comes from just shifting our mindset to seeing discomfort as something that like you can go towards and can grow from versus something that we need to avoid. All right, so actually acknowledging that, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm okay with that, and then go into it. Exactly. You're setting yourself up for, you know, it's like thinking of, you know, the worst-case scenario. I know a lot of people talk about that, which I don't often think about too much, but um, probably I should, you know, think about what could possibly go wrong in my day, think about the worst-case scenario, and then you're prepared, aren't you? Yeah, it gives you it's it's like it gives your brain some evidence, you know. Mm. Your your brain is predictive, so it tells you if you kind of prepare it, then it's not caught off guard when you're like, "Oh, this does this is really hard," you know? Well, if you go into it thinking this is a piece of cake, guess what? When it gets really hard or really uncomfortable, your brain's going to be like, "Why are we in this? Like hit the alarm, threat mode, escape, yeah. like flight, get out of here." You promised me better things, brain. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's lovely, man. I love the research. Um, well done to another great book. Um, Steve, really appreciate your work. And um, I hope the listeners um, who haven't heard of you jump on there and, and check out some of the work as well because I just throw it up my alley. I love it. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate that and appreciate the conversation and your support. Steve, where can people reach you? Is it best to go to stevemagnus.com? Yep, stevemagnus.com. You can also check me out on all social media at Steve Magnus. At Steve Magnus. There you go, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwhite.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.
Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon